This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. There's a great quote by an AI researcher who says, you know, AI doesn't love you, it doesn't hate you, but you're made of atoms that it could use for something else. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Author scientist Andrew Smart is standing by from Switzerland to talk about machines, psychedelics, consciousness, the robot apocalypse, the technological singularity, LSD. Wow. Uh, And speaking of AI, this week, Google released a research paper chronicling one of its latest forays into artificial intelligence. Researchers at the company programmed an advanced type of chatbot that learns how to respond in conversations based on examples from a training set of dialogue. 
And the bot doesn't just answer by spitting out canned answers in response to certain words. It can form new answers from new questions. And this means Google's researchers could get a little creative with it, and they certainly did. They asked the bot everything from boring IT questions to the meaning of life. Uh, the responses were alternately impressive, amusing, and unnerving. If you want to find out what the meaning of life is, according to the Google AI bot, you can find that story again in the slide carousel up at strangeplanet.ca. Was it last week or the week before? We were talking about a Times Magazine correspondent or bureau chief who was contacted by some sort of a chat bot. It was a... It was an AI, artificial intelligence, sort of masquerading as uh, some sort of a um, marketing agent and asking him all sorts of questions. And he quickly deduced based upon the sort of the rhythm and the pattern uh, and the even evenness, the sort of the monotone quality of the voice that it was, in fact, a robot he was speaking with. And he was able to determine that also by asking it certain questions. Like, what day is it or something? And it wasn't able to respond and it would say, I don't understand the question or we have a bad connection. <laughs> anyway, then he directly asked, are you a robot? And he called it a she. She denied it. So the next time the phone rings and it's someone asking if you'd like your, your furnace ducts cleaned, you could be speaking with a robot. You never know. Okay, let's settle in. We are about to embark on what promises to be... I think a pretty remarkable journey over the next three quarters of an hour. Now, here's what Douglas Rushkoff writes about my next guest and his new book. Quote, Andrew Smart deftly shows why it's time for us to think deeply about thinking machines before they begin thinking deeply about us. In his new book, Beyond Zero and One, Machines, Psychedelics, and Consciousness, Andrew Smart weaves together binary numbers, the discovery of LSD, computer programming, and much more to connect the vast but largely forgotten world of psychedelic research with the resurgent field of AI and the attempt to build conscious robots. Andrew Smart is a scientist, engineer, interested in consciousness, brains, and technology. His work traverses the boundaries of neuroscience, philosophy, culture, radical politics, and metaphysics. Previously, he published Autopilot, the art and science of doing nothing. Andrew, welcome aboard. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Thanks for, for inviting me on. It sounds like we have a fine connection. You're in, uh, is it Bern, Switzerland? Terrific. Now, this is interesting because, listen, everybody's all, you know, talking about AI these days, the robotic ap apocalypse, the, the technological singularity. Ray Kurzweil, I believe, says 2045, when machines or robots become smarter than humans, it's something wicked this way comes, to quote uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh -huh. And then, so I, I, I open your book, and you actually, you take a rather interesting departure point. You start talking about the discovery of LSD right there in Switzerland by Albert Hoffman, an organic chemist, which I thought, wow, where is he going with this? <laughs> First, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the discovery of LSD and why you began there. Um, sure. Well, I think it's a, I mean, it's a really fascinating um, history, and I think it's um, kind of forgotten in, in sort of mainstream discourse. And I would say even within um, neuroscientific circles and uh, 
in science in general, it's it's largely been kind of suppressed or um, because the the drug is so controversial. So you, you there's only it's only recently that um, kind of a new generation of researchers has has gone back to the the drug and. You know, at the time when it was first synthesized, it was it was really kind of greeted as a revolution, and uh, psychiatry and neuroscience um, really thought this was like a, a huge breakthrough um, because b- before LSD, um, science really had no idea that brain chemistry had anything to do with moods or perception or consciousness or anything. And, and it, when when they realized, like, oh, this molecule you know, radically transforms your your conscious experience, then that, that actually led to the development of Prozac and other, you know, antidepressants and the whole the whole range of psychiatric drugs were developed, you know, it, directly as as a result of that uh, of the discovery of L S D. So <clears throat> it's it's a really fascinating history and there was a huge amount of research done um after the, the drug was first um synthesized. And and the story behind it is really interesting because it was really by accident. Yes, um, as so many great he, discoveries are. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, he was trying to develop a respiratory treatment. Um, this is in the early 1940s. Yeah, 1943. Uh, dur- dur- you know, during right during the war, which and it, it's amazing that they were still operating quite normally at that time. And he, yeah, the the story is he accidentally got some in his system somehow when he was working on. He was working with this uh, rye, this fungus that grows on rye, um, and synthesizing different variants of of compounds from from the source. Um, and then, yeah, one afternoon he he got, you know, he started to see colors and got kind of dizzy. And and he first thought it was uh, because of of chloroform that he was using as a solvent. Um, and but then he he kind of suspected like, you know, it could have been this this LSD that he had just synthesized and. So he came back the next day and tried a self experiment. He just he made some more and he ate it, which is you know kind of uh, unheard of <laughs> today in in drug research. <laughs> like nobody makes an, a new thing that nobody's ever tried before and just eats it. Um, Pretty brave. And, and he, <laughs> Pretty brave of him. Yeah, but yeah. it was the most and, minute trace he could make because he didn't. He wanted, yeah. a, I guess, kind of a baseline. Well, yeah, he thought he made a, a you know just two hundred fifty micrograms, which he thought wouldn't do anything. Um, but it turns out that's a huge, you know, that's a, a really big dose dose of it, and and he then he had this incredible experience. And, and first he thought he was dying and going insane um, when, when sort of at the peak of the experience because he had obviously n- nobody had ever experienced something like this before, except of course, um, you know, in in ancient or in you know other other social groups that use uh, psychedelics as part of their religious. Um, activities so but then yeah he uh, but then gradually this this um insanity feeling or this death feeling um went away and then he kind of had this you know tremendous euphoria and this kind of breakthrough um for for several hours where he he felt like he um, had this kind of transcendent experience um yeah and so that's kind of the the background uh to that discovery um and so I guess yeah the <clears throat> I, I was I started off because I, I so there's there's two sort of parallel interests of mine that you know one is is robots and art and artificial intelligence and then on the other side is uh, my background is in cognitive science um, and I've done a lot of work in brain imaging 
labs and things, and I've always been really interested in philosophy of mind. Um, and so, yeah, one day I just, I kind of, I, I've been, I had been following this, you know, like you mentioned, the whole AI resurgence and, and all this discussion. And then one day, and I've I had a long interest in philosophy of mind. And then uh, um, one day I just, it, it kind of popped in my head, like, well, what if, you know, what if, a, if we really reach this singularity and you have these super, these, you know, human-like and artificial intelligences, you know, could they have altered states of consciousness? And, and if... If not, why? You know, I thought it opened up really interesting problems. Like Absolutely, not, it does. I want to talk about LSD a little bit more and, and ask you whether or not, because this is really central to your, your theory, I guess, about whether or not we need to be worried about AI or a robot apocalypse, as it's being called now in certain quarters, and that is whether LSD improves um, or increases uh, our perception, human perception. I think it's a it's definitely an open empirical question that's actively being uh, researched and I think there's there's some really exciting new um, studies coming out uh, where we can finally kind of peer you know inside the 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 brain while it's on uh, hallucinogenic uh, molecules and and really um, you know see exactly what the changes are in um, you know the 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 brain activity using you know using modern uh, brain imaging techniques and i don't i don't know that anyone has done a, a really serious study on on perception and um you know whether whether performance on sort of traditional psychological tasks improves uh, on lsd or what the effects are um it it's primarily been researched in uh psychotherapy or in in therapy situations back in the 60s, there was a huge amount of research on, you know, helping people overcome alcoholism um, and anxiety and things like that. Yeah, they're using ayahuasca down in in, uh, Central and South America, very controversial therapy, but there have been some high-profile celebrities who have gone down there, used ayahuasca to to do just that. Yeah, yeah, and I I think it's, um, it's, especially in those in those cultures where they have um, uh, like like really a cultural sort of support system for those experiences, you know, to inter- like it, it, it's kind of it, it's a rite of passage or it's a it's a religious ceremony. So people in those cultures have a cultural context in which you know to fit these experiences. Whereas I think uh, for us in the in the you know Western world, we we definitely don't have any kind of um, Myths or or stories in which to integrate what these what these drugs do. Um, so of course, the, I think the natural thing to do with it is is try to you know help ha- with emotional problems or psychological problems. But as as far as like the accuracy or the you know if it if it allows you to see anything uh, better uh, without the drug, then with it, I I don't I'm not you know I'm not sure of that or how that would be demonstrated. But I think the you know the subjective part of it is is very important, and that's it, that's very hard to study, of course, scientifically, because it's it's different for everybody. Um, but we do we are starting to get evidence and see exactly what these molecules do, um, it's, for example, to the serotonin system, um, and how kind of the the brain network that is generating your normal everyday experience. Um, you know, pretty much disintegrates <laughs> on on LSD or on, on and 
all all of the hallucinogenics are are very chemically similar. It's just it's just really minor modifications to different um, bonds that make up the, the family of of these kinds of drugs. Right, and they are the there was a there was a period you mentioned the 1960s, and then after that, a lot of these drugs were became prohibited. There was yep. a period of about 40 years when it was absolutely verboten to study. Uh, these sorts of things. And then I went down to UCLA Medical Center and interviewed Dr. Charles Grobe, who was using magic mushrooms or synthesized uh, magic mushrooms to help ease the end-of-life anxiety with cancer patients. Yeah. And was having some absolutely remarkable results. And um, it, it, it sort of leads to the whole discussion about whether or not, when you talk to people that have used magic mushrooms or LSD, whether or not they have a spiritual experience or not, but it almost leads into a discussion of whether or not consciousness is a product of the mind or exists outside the mind. Yeah, and I think you you quickly bump right up into these really, you know, these ancient philosophical debates uh, that are still ongoing. Um, and despite all of our progress and all of our, you know, and, and despite this, this new AI craze, um, you know, the, these things aren't solved. You know, there's no definitive uh, way to say one way or the other. I mean, I, of course, I have my own ideas, and every you know, a lot of people have. There's a lot. There's a lot of different theories, but I don't think there's a broad consensus about what, even scientifically, about what consciousness is and where it is. Um, you know, whether it's inside the brain or outside the brain, or um, you know, there, there's. And there's a really serious um, study of it now within neuroscience, and it's finally kind of accepted within neuroscience and psychology to study consciousness. And that's that's a very recent thing as well, because before it was kind of a taboo um, topic within within academic research about about the brain and the mind, because it was too diffuse and too fuzzy and ill-defined, and you know, people could, wanted to study memory and attention and perception. You know, these very uh, easy to define and easy to measure things, but <clears throat> I think finally, with you know, with the help of technology, of course, we're able now to uh, get you know develop a, a very serious um, science of consciousness, you know, within within neuroscience, within like mainstream neuroscience, and I think that's very exciting. Um, so I think it's it's a very interesting contrast to this. Um, I guess you would call it hype, you know, from from like you mentioned before, like Google, and when when these um, kind of breakthroughs happen, or these these developments like the chatbot, or um, d- d- different things where people go, "Wow, uh, we're really almost creating artificial intelligence," and it's this, "Wow, it's think it's really thinking." Um, I, I think when you compare that to what's I think we really still underestimate what's going on in the brain, and that was that was part of the purpose of the book too. Was really to point out, like, for every advance we make, it kind of opens up new questions, and we realize, wow, it's still extremely mysterious. Right, and it, to to reduce humanity to a you know a complex computational uh, you know process that that's what that's the sum that's the be all and end all of what our brains are and our minds is is really a disservice. But let me get back to then the connection, and you've sort of alluded to this, but let's nail it down here: the connection between LSD with machine consciousness. Yeah, and I, so I basically what I was looking at was you know in within AI there's there's for sure a uh, like a, a theme that the, the the goal is to create an artificial mind, 
and and it would really be it would it would first match you know humans and it would be indistinguishable from a human mind and then it would quickly you know advance to this what they call a, a super intelligence that would be vastly uh superior to us in in all these different domains and so i i started to to think about what you know well our our human mind is one of the the main things about it is is that we hallucinate and we hallucinate in a lot of different circumstances like with schizophrenia or uh for example if you're uh, above 20,000 feet or w- without uh, oxygen for example like mountaineers and there's all there's all these really interesting um altered states of of the human mind um and so i thought if you know if you really have this artificial mind and it's that that's also a very uh controversial term but then is you know does that mean that it, it should be able to do all the things that our minds can do. And so I was just, it, the idea was to ask this question of, well, once you have this mind and it's, um, it's human level, to, to me, that also means that it should, it should be able to have these altered states because that's a fundamental uh, aspect of our minds. And then I looked more into the, the research on hallucinations and things, and there's even, it, it turns out that um, you could consider our, our everyday kind of experience as not um, totally different from hallucinating, really. So the the difference is is more in degrees versus um, it's that it's these distinguishable states of I'm hallucinating versus I'm having a normal experience. It's the same. It's really the same physiology um, and the same brain mechanisms that are generating hallucinations and generating. What, what you would call normal experience. Um, and I think that that aspect of our minds is, is, you know, pretty much ignored in AI. And, and they, I mean, they're, they're kind of just following um, a very, I, I, I don't want to say crude, but kind of a, sim, a simplistic, um, under, you know, understanding of what the brain is doing. And then these new algorithms come out and and the hype kind of becomes, oh, it's doing it just like a brain. And and so part of the point of the book is like, well, we we still don't really know what the brain is doing, um, and and as what we do know, it's quite different from what um, AI is still is still doing, and yeah, and I think part of the yeah, like you said, the the purpose of the book was to call into question these um, these timelines that have been proposed that we're we're just decades away from real artific- a real artificial mind. Uh, and, and, you, oh, go ahead. Sorry, you, sorry, you you illustrate the the point quite nicely with the late, great Robin Williams and an appearance he made on Inside the Actors Studio. And I remember this episode. Uh, and he had the host just sort of, <laughs> he just sort of gave up, threw up his hands and said, okay, just take it away. Yeah. <laughs> because Robin Williams went on one of his patented sort of stream of consciousness escapades, the way that uh, his mentor Jonathan Winters used to do. I, I, I remember as a kid on The Tonight Show and just being amazed at the connections that they would make in such ra- in a rapid way, and they would just take something. It, it was just the art of improv, but you know, to the power of ten. But to, to talk to me about, you know, why that episode with Robin Williams on Inside the Actors Studio made it into this book, and why it was had such a profound effect on you. Well, I, I think it really fundamentally illustrates kind of the um, the gulf, I guess, between. Um, you know what these what the chatbot is doing, for example, and what a human what a real human can do still 
and 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 I don't want to suggest that we'll never get there to making an artificial Robin Williams. Like I, I don't want to say that's impossible based on first principles because I, I, you know, I don't think we we know, and I don't think we can say at this point. But I I think the the interesting thing was that the the way. You, I think you can get a glimpse of what the human mind is doing because we, you know, we all we're all capable of things like that. Not, not obviously, not like you said, we're, we're order, many orders of magnitude less funny than Robin Williams, but we all have these associations and these vague um, intuitions, and we still don't know what what how the brain is accomplishing that. I mean, there's lots of ideas, but um, we still don't know wh- how that kind of communication can happen among you know among a group of people that where you have one person who's kind of guiding all of our attention and our consciousness to these different relationships among things that we never, that maybe we're subconsciously aware of, but then it takes a, a kind of a genius like Robin Williams to connect these things. And then you, you, you have these moments of, of humor where you are, all these things are connected and you go, Oh my gosh, that's, that's hilarious. And he can rat, he can just cycle through these, Things and partially it's of course training that he's you know spent his life uh, performing this way, but partially it's it's just something about the way his brain is built um, that he can use these vague, um, weak you know very weak connections among things that that normally don't appear to us, and when they do appear to us, they're very funny because they resolve a lot of ambiguity and things. And right now, you know even these chatbots um, can't. They, you know, can't cope with any kind of of these uh, these types of relationships that, for example, that Robin Williams could connect. Um, we just we just don't understand how that's how that's working in the in the brain yet. Right. And we don't and we don't know how to do that with an algorithm either. No, we can't produce Robin Williams with a series of ones and zeros. And and what's kind of I, I don't know about ironic, but um, you know we thought initially that Robin Williams took his life because of depression, and then we learned from his widow uh, that in fact he had he was battling a debilitating neurodegenerative disease, which is is actually it's quite common, a form of dementia, I guess similar to Alzheimer's, but it's called um, LBD, or dementia with, a Louis, is it Louis Bodies, LBD? Ah, so, yeah, yeah, and, and I, I, I had read that, yes. So that he essentially was losing his mind and there was nothing he could do about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a terrifying, you know, I, I think that's, a, you know, everyone, that's a terrifying um, thing to have happen if you're... I, I think it's probably one of the most terrifying diseases out there, or these neurodegenerative diseases. So, I, it's I, of course, if you're someone who's used to performing or, or thinking in that way, and that starts to disappear, I can imagine it's just it's overwhelming and devastating, you know, to go from, sort of the pinnacle of of human, uh, you know, humor and, and improvisation to not to maybe the you know the. The outcome of that disease might be not, you know, not being able to tie your shoes or not even, you know what I mean? Uh, yes, yes. So, but you know, just being on the cusp of losing one's mind. I mean, it almost was as if as if he was sort of straddling that maybe his whole life, which almost fed into his particular genius. Who knows? I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, but we will continue to delve into consciousness, what makes us human, and why we need not necessarily sound the alarms regarding artificial intelligence. 
Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Better help is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com. That's help, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash conspiracy. And join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp, and Conspiracy Unlimited. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com conspiracy. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Andrew Smart is with us. Beyond Zero and One, Machines, Psychedelics, and Consciousness. I love the way you, um, your chapters are in, in binary code. And uh, one of the chapters starts off with, or it's titled, A Robot Walks Into a Bar. Uh, is there a punchline to that joke? <laughs> <laughs> no, not. I just, you know, I kind of wanted to, you know, bring up this, this relationship between humor and, and AI. Um, right, you know, I, and, and there's for sure been attempts to make uh, funny, <clears throat> funny chatbots or funny, and a, a, a lot of the, you know, like you said, a lot of the answers that these things give are inadvertently funny, you know, because they're, it's almost like speaking to a toddler or something, where, where or right. Well, you that you you illustrate it beautifully because uh, people may re- recall IBM's Watson. Uh, it was it was programmed to, to win at Jeopardy, uh, and some of the responses it gave were kind of bizarre. Uh, tell, tell, tell us a little bit about, about that. Do you recall the... Uh... Yeah, well, you know, he, for example, I, you know, there was a, a, a Jeopardy clue um, uh, about, uh, you know, about, Jane, or about 19th century novelists, and, uh, and Watson came back with the, you know, said, what is uh, the Pet Shop Boys? Oh, it was a question. Um, yeah, it was about Oliver Twist, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he, you know, and and, and you, you can kind of work out like maybe what you know how that came up. But you you I, I at least I laughed out loud when I heard that. Um, and and what's interesting to me is that he <clears throat> is this this idea that he's you know he can be really accurate like ninety percent of the time, but then when he's wrong, he's just absurdly wrong. You know, and I I find that very uh, an interesting difference because when when we're wrong. Um, we're kind of wrong in these sophisticated ways or in these, you know, in these very uh, ways that you, you can deduce almost what rules we're following to arrive at the wrong answer. And it's, ma- and it's plausible. Um, and, and I think we, st- we still don't know exactly how the brain um, combines these, these things to rule out implausible answers. Because there's a kind of a, you mentioned in the book, there's kind of a fuzzy logic that we humans have uh, that if we, if the Pet Shop Boys, and I'm not sure how Watson arrived at that. I mean, the the clue was Oliver Twist and he came up with Pet Shop Boys. I'm not sure how he arrived at that. Uh, But if that, for whatever reason, if Pet Shop Boys were to to come up in our brains, we would eliminate it using this fuzzy logic because we know it's impossible. But an, an, an AI can't doesn't have that fuzzy logic so they're just going to come out with it right and they and and the other thing a lot of people point out is they don't have yet of course um our first of all our our evolutionary history of you know you know millions of years and of uh of kind of inherited genetic intelligence or or knowledge that's that we get uh through dna and then also they don't have a life experience yet of growing up in a culture. Um, and, of course, I think, you know, AI is taking this seriously and, and trying to grow robots, so to speak, as a, as a child does and, and learns. But, but they, even these very powerful systems like Watson, um, you know, just has no, no access to cultural semantics or like what our shared sort of cultural meaning about things. And so, yeah, these these things that we we somehow automatically have access to this vast amount of of cult- shared cultural knowledge, and you know, if if you're a, of a certain age and have grown up in in a certain country or or certain culture, you know, you know, inst- you can recall and recognize instantly what the Pet Shop Boys are, and you know who Oliver Twist is, and it would it would just never the the relationship between the two is is a uh, is not something that occurs to us, but he's you know he's rifling through literally billions of answers, and somehow his algorithms return that this is the most like this is the likeliest answer in relationship to the question. But I think it reveals that he's still just or he or it you know Watson is just brute force um, running through all these all these things and then measuring kind of the probability that. Is this, you know, what, what is the m- most probable answer, not what is the most meaningful answer? And I think that's kind of the crucial um, difference still. Right. You, we cannot be reduced to an algorithm. Yeah. But, okay, so AIs may never be fully human. They may never get sarcasm, like Sheldon Cooper, uh, or irony, uh, but they could still be... A threat? No, I mean they could still be. They, their computations could be so much faster. And in fact, what may make them so dangerous is the fact that they lack that humanity. Yeah, and and I um, there, there's a great quote um, 
by by an AI researcher who says, you know, AI uh, doesn't love you, it doesn't hate you, but you're made of atoms that it could use for something else. <laughs> and, and oh, jeez, so, that is sinister. Yeah, and and I think that's the fundamental um, risk that that like people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk see is that. If you create the, you know, maybe they won't be human-like or they won't be conscious necessarily, but they'll 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 go on this kind of runaway course of um, develop, you know, connecting themselves and developing into things, and and they don't necessarily even have goals of their own, but they're just from the way that they're designed, there might be these unintended consequences um, where they become very very dangerous, maybe even before they would reach anything like human level. Uh, intelligence that that would be difficult for us to control if we're not very careful in how we design these systems um, so that it's yeah it, it, I think I think the risk is um, maybe not so scary as these um, you know that they would become evil and try to kill us it would be that they would um, th- there could be unintended consequences of developing these super intelligent systems well um, I mean it I suppose if you are just coldly logical, uh, you you could arrive at sort of a Malthusian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the good of the many outweighs the good of the few and so forth. And, and us, for us in the West who thrive on uh, individualism and, and so forth, uh, you know, that the rights of the individual are sacrosanct, uh, I can see where that is going to be a problem. I mean, they are now using... Uh, AI in theaters of war. Now, there is a human overseer at the moment, but at some point, who knows? I mean, that that human element may be removed, and uh, then we have AIs making these value calls or these judgments uh, based on computations and algorithms. And then, I think, we have a problem. Yeah, and I, I think that's the, the big risk. Um, is that exactly if you if you give these systems uh, life and death uh, decision making power, um, and on, on the other hand, you know you you have the situation where a lot of these algorithms, um, when they're used as parts of systems, become it becomes so complicated that there isn't there isn't one person who really understands what's going on. We, we we've talked about the the potential threat of of AIs and it's interesting you you point out you know this was a um, a very strange year the last couple of years really in terms of the stock market it it seems no matter how bad the news gets the stock market keeps going up 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 uh, up is down I mean there is no value in the market it's it's really there are no fundamentals and and yet I mean the markets are essentially run by algorithms, artificial intelligence. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and, and like you, you kind of allude to, that there's a huge disconnect between sort of the real-life economy and the stock market. <laughs> and I think it's because uh, it is, it is very, it's to a larger and larger degree more and more automated. Um, so you have these trades happening in, in milliseconds, you know, like one or two milliseconds that are, that it's even impossible for a human to perceive that uh, short of a time span, and so these thing, these algorithms are making these decisions in, at that speed, um, and it's you know it's it's trillions of dollars that are are shooting around in the system without really any human oversight, um, and and it like I mentioned before it's far too complex for any one person to be able to look at it and, and tell a story about what's going on. 
so I think you ha- you have this the stock market the stock market is becoming kind of uh, reflexive or it it reacts to itself um, because these al- you know these re- these algorithms just fight each other um, and I, and I point out some research in the book about how they are just um, they they go into these circles and herding behavior that that's even more extreme than what human investors do um, because you know they lack ki- you know kind of the the irrationality that is you know good actually for humans to balance things out is lacking from these things um, and and I, I talk about one uh, researcher in the book who 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 likens the behavior of the stock market to earth to aftershocks of an earthquake so something. You know, something will move the market uh, that may or may not be related to anything in the external world, and then the algorithms will react, and it'll it'll look kind of like you know these aftershocks where it goes up and down and up and down and up and down, but it's it's not reacting to anything in the world; it's just reacting to itself. <laughs> so it's this fascinating kind of a crazy situation. It is a synthetic beast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. you worked at Honeywell Aerospace. Uh, yep. For a while, and I'd be—I'm very curious. You were hired as a cognitive scientist and human factors researcher. What is going on in terms of AI uh, and these—you know—the Boeing seven sevens that we're flying around in? Well, the, I mean, I—I I would hesitate to call the automation on on airplanes AI. Um, It's—it's it, it's certainly you know very smart software, um, but it's not. We're not yet. The automation on airplanes is, an, it, I guess, it is making decisions. You know, it's um, you can turn on the autopilot, and it will follow uh, your flight path. You know, uh, for you, but you have to still program the flight path <laughs> into the into the flight management system. So, but I, I there's definitely a, a huge push toward automated, um, or you know, a- autonomous flying vehicles, so that you would just get in. And say something like uh, "Go to L.A." and and they would just do it, and you wouldn't. You know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, and, or the or Google coming out with a, a car that you know you don't have to drive. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and that technology is really, I think that that kind of technology is probably closer than a lot of people might think. You know, that's that's something that that works already, uh, at least for cars and and for airplanes, for example. You know, with with really really crowded airspace. The automation is much better, actually, at dealing with the separation between other airplanes than humans are. You know, so now we need to make sure there's a, a lot of space between uh, airplanes, but th- but that's kind of the limiting factor of of how many airplanes you can cram, you know, into an approach. Uh, but if you let computers do that, you you could safely. Uh, cram a lot more airplanes <laughs> into the same space, which, you know, may or may not be. Yeah, you just want to keep your eyes closed during the approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard of gray goo in, refer, in, in, in terms of nanotechnology. What is black goo? Well, it's Harold Kotzbella uh, that seems to be propagating this concept of um, an oil that has been extracted from the earth. And I think it was sort of tied into X-Files at the end of the series. Um, but I just wondered that there seems to be this sort of uh, uh, connecting of the dots to um, AI and some sort of either um, oil or, 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 or intelligently controlled self-automated systems. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, you've stumped me. And I don't know, uh, Andrew, if you have anything further to add. If not, we'll... Uh... 
Well, I mean, the only thing I could um, think of is, for, you know, for sure there's a lot of research in, in nanotechnology where you'd have, you know, like robots that you could inject, for example, for a medical purpose. So, you, you know, they would be, mi- you know, these micro-engineered particles that, that can actually, you know, have software in them. Um, but I, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of substance they would be associated with or if there's any. Yeah, but uh, otherwise, yeah, I'm not familiar with that. All right, Mitch, thank you for the thank call. You. Have a great night. We mentioned Ray Kurzweil earlier, and he's sort of at the forefront of the transhumanist movement, uh, which I have to be honest, I've, I've, I've talked to a number of proponents of transhumanism, and uh, there's something that just does not sit well with me on many levels. Uh, but what about when we were talking about a hybrid? Uh, so you take a human mind, fully human uh, consciousness, and then you begin to merge it with AI that that would basically ramp up our computational abilities, uh, you know, to an X factor beyond, beyond, beyond. Um, I mean, is that are we headed in that direction? And is there are you concerned at all about that? I, I mean, I think we are for sure, and I, and I, I do talk about in the book um, Miguel Nicolelis um, at Duke in in North Carolina. Um, you know, he he's really already developed kind of working uh, brain machine interfaces, or he, where I, I don't know if you've if you've seen it, but he, you know, his team made a basically a robot arm uh, that's controllable. Uh, through implants in a monkey's brain. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the, mon- the monkey learned how to, with its brain waves, you know, just control this arm that could reach out and grab a juice or whatever. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that, and it's inter- and I bring him up a lot in the book is because he doesn't believe that the mind is computable or that it runs on computation. And yet he's at the forefront of actually uh, making these kind of hybrid brain machine systems. So I, I don't think... Um, I, I think that kind of technology will just continue to progress where we can implant things in the brain as tools and the brain kind of adapts to having this thing in it well, and, you and think about how to use it as a tool. Sure. Think about people with spinal cord injuries. Uh, they yeah. have, they're quadriplegics and, and with this type of technology, they can, they can move their legs and their arms again. Yeah. But I, I think the other the, – the dimension or the it, – it's one thing for, for – to, that we can decode um, intentions, you know, move like motor intentions, um, and translate those into control signals for a robot. You know, you, you, you take the electrical activity that's generated in a certain part of the brain, um, <clears throat> and you record that, and then you, you analyze that data, and you interpret whether the intention is to grab or move left or right. And <clears throat> those, those kinds of, I would say, simple um, commands are one thing, the, the, the idea that you could actually enhance your own, you know, for example, let's say you're trying to remember uh, some historical fact or trying to figure out a math problem that, or, or even access one of your own experiences from your life and, and what kind of implant, you know, or technology we could use to assist you or, or to assist our, our brain, yet is very, I think that is very far away where you you'd have some technology in your brain that would would help your memory and help your right uh, ability to to do very human but but 
primarily subjective things is um, right. In other I, words, I think that's another level. <laughs> yes, we're, so you would suggest I'm gathering that we are a quantum leap from resleeving our consciousness and achieving virtual immortality. Yes, I I think that. Um, yes, I, I I would say that that is um, a huge a huge challenge because we while we know we we can more or less um, work out you know, when we are intending to grab, you know, something <laughs> with our arm and we, we can map out on the brain or where in the brain that, that is more or less happening, you know, like a, uh, an internal thought or like uh, an experience is something that is, and, and even Nicolelis writes about this, it's, it's not a computable state of the brain uh, in principle. And there's, there's a lot of uh, detailed reasons uh, for this, but uh, yeah, I think, like you said, I think that's a that's a huge leap. <laughs> well, I can rest easy now. I'll have a good night's <laughs> sleep. But uh, you know, I'm I'm so glad that you came on, and uh, because there is so much hype out there, even from great minds like Stephen Hawking, and and it seems like every month now uh, we're getting uh, some. Uh, someone you know in higher learning or the halls of academia ringing the the alarm bells about AI and the the the, the singularity and the robot apocalypse, um, but uh, you have really I think uh, turned down the heat on the burner on that and provided uh, some illumination and I thank you and and congratulations on Beyond Zero and One. It's enlightening but it's also good fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on. It was it was a lot of fun. Andrew, uh, very quickly, how can people get a hold of the book? Um, I, I just the best way is to go to or books, o o r books as as one word dot com, uh, and that's the publisher. Um, you know, it's an in, independent publisher, so any any support you can give to them, it's it's great. Amen to that. O r books dot com. Yep. Excellent. Beyond zero and one. Andrew Smart, thank you again. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you as well. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 